The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome to the Utah Symphony's Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm rejoined today by Artistic Director of Utah Opera, Christopher Macbeth. Welcome back, Christopher. Thanks, Jeff, and it's always lovely to be sitting on the edge of a dark stage with you, lit by only (laughs) one single bulb. One single light. It hides a lot, doesn't it? Which is probably for the best. (laughs) So it's great to have you back. This is going to be a special sort of longer version of the Ghostlight Podcast because we're talking about the 17-18 season for the Utah Opera is an anniversary season. It's the 40th year of Utah Opera. So tell us what big themes you're going to focus on during this very special year. Thanks, Jeff. When we choose to celebrate anniversary seasons, as we are with the 40th, I always find that a great time to sort of look backwards, take, mm-hmm. a, uh, take a little glance at where we've come from, uh, some of our successes. And also at the same time, I like to find at least one pretty exciting project looking forward. Sure. We have a number of looking back uh, in this. Um, I, uh, as the custodian of this opera company, uh, pay my respects a great deal to its founder, Glade Peterson. Absolutely. Uh, And so there are at least three different areas during the course of the season that are my homage to Glade and everything that he's provided to this wonderful community and allowing us to build on his very broad shoulders to create one of the finest regional opera companies in America today. So uh, between that and again, looking forward and showcasing, showing off really the capabilities of this wonderful company, we have all of that going on in this particular anniversary season. Oh, there's there's a lot to celebrate there, as you said. And the Peterson name in Salt Lake City, if you're not from here, is royalty. It's, it's like Stuart in this town. It's very, very important family name. So we are thrilled to be celebrating Glade's legacy and the, and the important contributions of that family to the art scene in this city. So we will talk about each piece in, in turn and get, be specific about that. But I wanted to know first, though, just talking about the way you approached this season, I'm wondering, did your planning process for 1718 change given the extra importance that this season has for the company? It's not just a season. There's no such thing as just a season, right. probably. But this is the 40th anniversary. Did you feel any pressure? Or, 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 or was it just exciting? <laughs> oh, there's pressure for every season, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, you know, in addition to what I've talked about, and you've hit on the legacy of the company's founder, uh, and me wanting to really showcase the extraordinary abilities of the personnel of this organization to uh, the first-rate production facility we have here for the creation of theatrical elements. Um, There was also a heightened need to uh, really wow everybody as much as possible with each and every uh, production that we present this season. So each and every one, we were looking at this the other day uh, from, strangely, a budgetary standpoint. Uh, (laughs) But uh, these are large chorus shows. These are large orchestra shows. These are large cast shows. Uh, Many of the casting requirements for each of them require uh, extreme specificity in the key roles uh, and also require conductors and directors who are want to say something special about what we will be doing with sure. each of the 
these productions. So there was a great deal of thought given to that. And yes, we felt like, wow, we we don't have one slot in our season where we can sandbag. We really need to do something uh, quite interesting with each of them. You have so, to be on for the so, entire yes, year. Yes, and, sure. you know, and it's a 40th anniversary season. It's not a 50th. It's not a 75th. But it's still, yeah. it's one of those mile markers that you have to give note to. And yeah. so I think we've done a great job. Let's talk about what you have planned. And I'd, I'd love for you to give us a quick overview. As I said, we'll, we'll go in depth about each project as we go along. But I'd love to know what you have planned for that season and if there are any connections between the four pieces or four productions, anything, any sort of meta message that you're hoping to send. You know, I don't know if there is a thematic connection necessarily between the four pieces, the four main stage pieces at the Capitol Theater that we've chosen. Um, I always talk about, and and maybe I'm repeating myself here, I do tend to talk about uh, planning seasons like planning a menu because opera people are also tend to be foodies. Uh, so, uh, you know, I do also look at it in that manner. Uh, so thinking about, you know, what, what gets us started to whet our appetite for the rest of the season, what, what in the middle of the season is, is the, the real stick to your bones kinds of course, and then how you ease into a lovely, uh, end of the, of the dinner experience with something perhaps sweet and lovely to leave on your tongue. Uh, and, and that may be a something of an overstatement, but it does exist in my mind as I'm thinking about each of the seasons. Have you taken on this food parallel because you've been bashed over the head with the spinach opera <laughs> metaphor for your entire you know, career? Thanks for raising that. Uh, we keep trying to get rid of, of that, that whole concept. Uh, there are a couple of people who still um, still raise that uh, raise that idea and that image kind of a thing. No, I think it's mostly because I like to eat and uh, you know, I like opera, so yeah. I think it's really easy for me to think of things in those kinds of a context. I bet most of our listeners can too, and I, they probably appreciate the way you think of it because when you do take a step back and look at it, it, it can feel like courses, like carefully curated courses of one single experience. That's what we try is to yeah. make that kind of an experience over the course sure. of the season. Absolutely. So let's jump in. We're starting the season with La Boheme, a piece that doesn't require any introduction probably, but why don't you tell us about the production? What's special about this? La Boheme at Utah Opera. Sure. Well, and uh, and to start out with, La Boheme, we're starting the season, and I love it in an anniversary season as the beginner, um, not only because it's just a great way to start the season. Everybody loves La Boheme. Mm-hmm. It's the perennial box office favorite, um, even though it seems to be one of the ones that are sometimes the hardest to spell or pronounce, but uh, <laughs> it's La Boheme. Yes. Also, it was the first opera that we did uh, in the history of the company, and uh, I just love that kind of connection, uh, so that's a that's a big reason why we're doing it. The, uh, we're doing a production that I'm excited to bring here, a physical production. So now I'm talking about sets, costumes, things of that nature. Right. I'm excited to bring here because it was built in our production studio. Fantastic. So over the course of the season, you sort of have to weigh things out of what can you build from scratch. Uh, what have you built in the past that you own and can present because of your pride in the legacy of your company? Uh, sometimes there's a production that exists and owned by another community that I'm excited to bring here and show off. 
Um, but this is one that is kind of a combination of things. This is a production that we built about eight years ago, actually for another company. Um, and I've always said, when I saw it being built in our studio, I thought, I wish I could put that on our stage. Mm -hmm. I need the opportunity to bring this. Yeah. It's colorful. It's lively. There is a general outline of Paris and the left bank without getting overly specific. Sure. Uh, we've done productions sometimes, and we will do again productions that are specific in detail down to the cobble that you might cross when right. you're going to the other side of the River Seine. Uh, but this, this time I wanted something that showcased the wonderful artists a little bit more. We could bring in the lighting uh, and focus in on the people actually performing the roles, who these lovely people are that are in this show, the people that, you know, it's one of those great tragedies that you actually believe in the first act, they're going to make it. It's, mm -hmm. They're, they're going to live. You know, it's it, this is the one where people come out all right. Sure. Uh, and uh, I wanted to be able to focus in on that rather than, you know, is the picture on the back of Cafe Momus exactly the one that we see when we go there today kind sure, of thing. Sure, sure. Um, so that's the production I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm bringing an artist um, by the name of Nicole Heaston. Nicole was recently with us as the Countess in our most recent production of Mer uh, Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Mm -hmm. Nicole had a tremendous experience with us. Uh, our audience absolutely adores her. This will be, if not her first, one of her first outings with this iconic role of Mimi, the principal uh, heroine, if you will. Uh -huh. um, That's interesting. So it's not one she's done a lot, no, if it's, at all. It's yeah. not. I think yeah. we may be giving her her first go at Fabulous. this, actually. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a wonderful opportunity to to showcase someone that's already had tremendous success with our company yes. and be a vehicle for her future success as well. Yeah. Something that I, I love and relish finding whenever yeah. I'm doing casting. Absolutely. And to bring us uh, musically, the great music of Puccini to life is one of Utah Opera's favorite, one of Utah Symphony's favorite conductors, uh, Maestro Robert Tweeten, oh, yeah. who's had uh, now about a 13-year history with us. All stellar successes. Um, and so it will be his first poem, actually. No kidding. And when wow. we were talking uh, a year and a half ago about the opportunities that came up, his eyes got real big. Sure. He saw that sure. because it was one of the few things, you know, he's done Butterfly with us. He's done Tosca with us. It was one of the few Puccinis he hasn't had a chance to actually conduct. That's fabulous. Um, so I, I'm thinking we're going to have a special musical experience. I yeah. think we're going to have a special theatrical experience. Sure. And I think it's just going to be a great way to come right out of the gate with this special season. I think any season, any anniversary season for Utah Opera that didn't involve Bob Tweeten would be a crime. Well, so, I, I think we might have some mutiny on our hands. I think so, too. Case. I also love the idea of a set that our folks built for someone else years ago is coming home in a way. I think that's fabulous. It really is. Yeah. And we have some of the finest artisans oh, in yes. technical yeah. area of theater in our company, uh, both in costume yeah. and in scenic building and design. Uh, so this is something that means a great deal to us. That's a great segue into the January Opera, Christopher, because those people are going to be on display. Their work will be front and center. Let's talk about Moby Dick, which is a brand new production of an established, established new work. So yes. tell us about that. 
that production. Yeah, we're, we're finally going to chase down that whale. Yes, I'm looking indeed. forward to that. You uh, caught it, Christopher. Uh, Congratulations. Well, we haven't caught him yet. <laughs> uh, but Moby is on the horizon. Yeah. I love it. So in 2010, a new opera was born by today's reigning composer libretto writing team of Jake Heggie and Gene Shear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jake and Gene have had tremendous success and really of living breathing opera creators they are at the top of the of the charts right now sure. if if you if you want to hit you look to Jake and Jean yeah. was at the premiere of Moby Dick when it happened at another company it was a beautiful production beautiful team uh, and i talked with Jake and Jean and i said uh, about 5 years ago now and i said wouldn't it be great you had such success with this one production wouldn't it be great to give this opera even more life and create another production and specifically create one that's capable of playing as wide a variety of theaters around not only this country but beyond as possible? Sure. Well, talk about eyes getting big. Uh, they looked at me and they and they said, would you do that? They said, we would trust Utah Opera and its abilities to create that production. And so I'm most excited to share that finally we are going to present this wonderful new American epic classic Moby Dick by Jake Heggie and Gene Shear. And as a matter of fact, here we are 12 months out from when we'll present it as we're recording this. Sure. And the steel is already being cut. Um, we've had the designs for a long time. Um, we've had the design team out here several times. We're already 12 months out starting the engines of building that new production mm. that I know is going to be a huge success for our company and uh, raise the success of this uh, fantastic opera and is really going to be a watershed moment for the company. I think so. I, I've seen artist renderings, early ones of the set, and I can't wait to see it come to life. You, you touched upon something really interesting that I'd like, love you to comment on just briefly. People don't realize just how big an issue the variability of theater size and shape can be in the life of a production. Somebody who builds something to be at the Met or Chicago Lyric has to sort of understand that it's not going to have a life in most of the rest of the halls across the country. <laughs> so you've basically offered Jake Heggie an opportunity to give his piece a much greater life than it would have had otherwise. Am I right about that? You're absolutely right yeah. about that. And there is a certain amount of intent with with the producing company and the director and design team when they create something. Sure. Um, and in the case of the first production of Moby Dick, again, it was spectacular. It was beautiful. I, and and uh, it's played a handful of other venues. But it, it was not designed with the intent of how could we make something that will be as usable as possible and in as wide a variety of venues as possible? It wasn't made to travel. Just just yeah. wasn't the intent. That yeah. wasn't the focus of, sure. the, of, of that particular project, which sure. is perfectly fine. Right. Because there are pieces that can play our theater and can play the Lyric Opera of Chicago right. or the Metropolitan Opera. There right. are those designs that allow such things. But that takes a great deal of intent sure. and a great deal of thought forethought by the design team. Sure. Um, and Erhard Rome, specifically, he, he's our set designer. He's the one that really had to think about this, along with the wonderful director, Christine McIntyre. 
um, who has done, uh, will be doing our Don Giovanni upcoming right. and also produced our wildly successful Pearl Fishers yes. a couple of years ago. Yes. They really grabbed the bull by the horns and embraced this concept of making something that had the flexibility and the impact uh, and how it plays on stage and every little detail yeah. just so it can lend itself to giving this piece even more life than Absolutely. it already has. At the very least, you've given Jake an opportunity to have a second premiere for this piece, basically, which is pretty cool. That's a great way of saying yeah. that. Um, yeah. I, I can tell you Jake is very excited. He and I yeah. email about every other week about details, whether it's casting or this or that and the other. Um, and Jake and Gene are both so excited. They're, of course, going to come to Salt Lake City Wonderful. during the final steps of rehearsals and right. be here for opening night yeah. and celebrate with us, yeah. uh, again, breathing even more life yeah. into this uh, uh, this wonderful work. Very, very special project in that season. So let's move ahead into March of 2018. Uh, we're going to have a twin bill in March, Johnny Skiki and E. Pagliacci. Now, Pagliacci is almost always paired with something, right? I mean, the, the one time that I ever performed the piece in the pit, it was paired with Il Tabaro, a different right. Tritico operas of Puccini. So is Skiki a more common mate? What's the kind of standard practice there? So Skiki is actually part of the Puccini Tritico right. uh, that you that you raised, and of course that includes Suor Angelica and Il Tabarro. Yeah, uh, Pagliacci was was originally conceived as something to be performed with another uh, piece called um, Cavalleria Rusticana. Right. Um, so it's not uncommon to have these pieces. They're they're one acts. Yeah. Um, they are about. 45 minutes to an hour long, each of the pieces I've mentioned, plus the ones we're doing. Um, and so, yes, there is a, let's pair these and make a fuller night than just this short one-act piece. Sure, sure. People have gotten away from uh, putting Pagliacci and Cavalleria Rusticana together, um, partially for just artistic feelings about each of the pieces, um, this artistic director finds that Cavalleria Rusticana has amazing moments, mm. but as a piece, isn't as strong as I would like to pair with something like Pagliacci. Yeah. What I really enjoy about pairing these two, Pagliacci and Gianni Schicchi, together, even though they're different composers, even though they're written at slightly different times, mm -hmm. is uh, for me, one is an intense, dark tragedy yes. it's it's revenge it's yeah. jealousy there's yeah. love involved there's a love triangle involved there's even an extra person who wants to be in the love triangle so mm -hmm. to speak mm -hmm. or, uh, you know it, it is all these dark verismo concepts right. that were so prevalent at the turn of the right. 19th century mm -hmm. um and then johnny skiki it's hard to find a a richer comedy than Johnny Skiki. It yeah. still lives in Italy as one of the most favorite stage pieces, yeah. not just operas, but theater pieces to go to yeah. because it is so uh, it's impactful in it being both having humanity and comedy all wrapped into one. Yeah, uh, And of course, the Skiki character being loosely based on one of the characters from Dante's Inferno, and that's given reference to in the epilogue. I just love the idea, you know, when you go back to the old days of thinking, 
understanding of theater. In fact, in the Capitol Theater, we have those iconic masks, the tragic mask and the comic mask. Theater masks, right. That you often pair right next to each other. Sure. And here in one night, we get to basically represent that. And so I absolutely love that concept. Um, It also, I love doing Pagliacci, and I chose it uh, in great part again. Uh, It was one of Glade Peterson's big roles. One of his party roles. One of his money roles. Yeah, so sure. to speak. Sure. Uh, and it's a role, a uh, canio, uh, which requires a tenor with a certain amount of heft and and range and dramatic ability and yeah. to not only make beautiful sounds, but quite honestly, sometimes make some of the ugliest sounds you've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was one of the rare tenors in the world, actually, that's how he made his bones, um, who could actually sing this role mm-hmm. uh, accurately. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I immediately ran to Pagliacci and then as soon as I did, I wanted to do this skiki as well. Now we are going to try and tie it together a little bit. That was my next question. I'm I'm curious if the two productions are paired, if it's the same director. Tell us how you're handling the night. We have the same director. It's going to be a new production. So we are, we are building the physical production for this. Tara Faircloth, who just did, who just directed our Carmen. Right. Before that, directed the Marriage of Figaro. Before that, she'd also done a wonderful Barber of Seville for us. Mm-hmm. So, someone who has, for us, done both tragedy and comedy. Um, had never had the opportunity to put this pairing together. And so when she heard we were considering it, uh, it was very funny. I was talking with her about a whole other project, and she says, oh, that's fine and good. Now let's talk about Pagliacci and Skiki. (laughs) Uh, And so we got down to that, and we're working with one of her uh, designers, like I said, to create a production. Needs to move pretty quickly. Uh, It's a, you know, the Pagliacci is an exterior story. The Mm -hmm. Skiki is an interior story. So Mm -hmm. you need to be able to get there very quickly. Um, we're going to bring it into about the mid 20th century. Um, interesting. Partially, I mean, I think Pagliacci, interesting in the turn of the 19th century, if you want to go there. For whatever reason, I don't feel Skiki works in Renaissance setting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you do it in Florence, of course, you everything still feels Renaissance Absolutely. architecturally in, in Florence. Absolutely. So we will give a nod to that. But for the individuals themselves, their costumes, their mannerisms, all of that, uh, that doesn't have as much resonance. And, sure. and you really need... As much as it's a comedy, you need to see these human beings as human beings as well. So that's why we're going to have the entire thing in the mid-20th century. Uh, and, and mostly that'll be set dressing, costumes, mannerisms, directorial choices, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. We are also going to have a couple of crossover cast playing key roles in both shows. So they'll be recognizable uh, in each show. Interesting. Yeah, they won't yeah. be the same character Understood. per se. Sure, sure. So we'll get to see a transformation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, probably the key role that you'll you'll really see, and I kind of like the way this works, is the baritone who comes out is in the role of Tonio in Pagliacci. And in the top of, of Pagliacci is what we call a prologue. Uh-huh. He comes out, and this was an old thing that in the Commedia dell'arte that they sure. would do. Yep. They would come out and say, you know, Ladies and gentlemen, get people's attention. You're about to see people. Don't worry. You know, the, the tears you see are not real tears. Yeah. When someone dies, they're not real dies. Now, in Pagliacci, instead, he comes out and he says, this is what they used to say. 
what we give you is reality, ladies uh-huh. and gentlemen. Yeah. The tears you will see are real tears. Yeah. The jealous rage you will see is real humanity. We will suffer with these with our roles, our characters Interesting. on stage, which was a nod towards the concept of verismo or reality, sure. uh, basically tabloid opera, if yeah. you will, yeah. that was what they were trying to achieve at that point. But also a sort of self-referencing Greek chorus. Exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The person who plays that role will go on to also play the role of the title role of Johnny Skiki mm-hmm. in the second role, mm-hmm. who interestingly has a bit of an epilogue moment at the very end of the show. I love it. Where he breaks the fourth wall, just sure. as he had his Tonio at the top of sure. the night. At the end of the night, he will again break that fourth wall with the audience, begging their forgiveness for what has gone on during the course of Johnny Skiki in the story. It sounds like a huge directorial challenge. I mean, what a lot of moving plates to keep oh, spinning. It, I mean. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's yeah. probably going to be one of the highlights of the season. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, can't wait to see that. Let's talk. Let's let's move on to the final opera of your 1718 anniversary season. You're going to close with Die Fledermaus. And I suspect, like Bohème, this piece has a long history with Utah Opera. How many times has it been done? What's kind of the what's the what's the yeah, background? Good question. Yeah. Um, interestingly, only three times. You're kidding! In forty years? No, three wow. three times in forty years. Which, when you think of a piece that most people, whether they are extremely familiar with opera, opera files, if you will, or the casual uh, enjoyer of opera, mm-hmm. everybody seems to know the the name Deflator Mouse. Of course. You know? Yeah. You know, we needed a party. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. basically Flater mouse revolves around a party and right. in and of itself is a party sure uh there the champagne is flowing there's waltzing there's shenanigans going on mm-hmm. um while there is of course uh there are real relationships husband and wives best friends uh all those kinds of things going on uh at the same time there's it's frivolous it's, it's sure. frothy it's 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 just that wonderful sort of great dessert course going was, back to my original metaphor. I was metaphor. just about to comment. It sounds um, like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, that nobody dies. Yeah. Everybody leaves happy. Yeah. There's resolution at the end. Yeah. Everybody's fine at the end and smiles and shakes each other's hands and slaps each other on the back <laughs> and says, aren't we, weren't we glad we were here? It's the kind of dessert you order hungry yeah. or not. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have one of our uh, sort of new favorite conductors, both with the orchestra and with the company, Gary Wado. Uh-huh. Uh, and he himself is a frothy character so sure he'll be perfect in the pit for that the right man for the job yeah exactly yeah. and yeah. i get to bring back um also in one of the key roles eisenstein around which the entire shenanigans of the story revolve mm-hmm. both the one the shenanigans that happened before the opera starts and the ones that happen during i get to bring back one of our um longtime perennial favorites daniel belcher uh, of course uh back to join us in yeah. that key role just with us as Danilo in uh, yeah. The Merry Widow. He was our go-to Beaumarchais guy for a long time. He Absolutely. was Figaro. And, yeah. Great Barber of Seville, Absolutely. wonderful yeah. in uh, Magic Flute, right. as right. well as the Papageno, the yes. Birdman. So, yes. um, he, he's, he wanted that role so badly, he actually yeah. reached out to me and, and asked if he could come back and join us for this special season. I think Danny's earned that, right? I think uh, we'll yeah. all be happy to have Danny there. Any other exciting casting things you want to talk about for just, just in general over the season? I, I don't want to leave that out. Yeah. In general, I'm excited about a new conductor to our company, mm-hmm. uh, going back to the double bill. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're doing pieces of such an Italian nature, uh, you really look for someone that not only has experience with our repertoire, 
doesn't hurt if they have a little bit of garlic in their blood and, <laughs> and, and have that Italian thing running sure. through them. Sure. So uh, Joe Culinary is going to join us. Uh, Joe has a long history with the Metropolitan Opera, is the music director at Glimmerglass Opera, um, amongst other things. And and uh, he and I were talking about what, what the right project would be, and we really thought – this would be a place for him to showcase his talents. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to that. And then, of course, at the beginning of the year, we have our gala in September. You can't have a celebratory season without a gala of some sort. So, so we, tell us. So we kick off the season with something quite extraordinary, actually. Drum roll, please. Uh, so, yes, if, if we had one, we'd use a drum Absolutely. roll. Um, but perhaps the most famous name in opera living today as a, as a soprano uh, will be joining us September 13th. At a Bravenel Hall and a special gala, uh, Renee Fleming. Fantastic. Renee has had a, a great success, of course, uh, with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Mm-hmm. If you know, very little about opera, you probably know the name Renee Fleming. Uh, she is one of the most iconic divas of our, I mean, Absolutely. she's actually one of the nicest women on the face of the planet, yeah. but if, but prima donna perhaps is a better way of describing her. Yeah. Uh, she is the go-to soprano for so many things. Absolutely. And I've enjoyed her in Mozart and Strauss. I've seen her marry Widow. I've seen her in so many things. And I just could not be more pleased that as a kickoff mm. to the 40th anniversary season, we get basically the most famous opera singer in the world to come and join us. What more can you ask for in a 40th anniversary season? Amazing. Amazing casting, amazing conductors, great directors, lots of opportunity for the scenic shop and the costume shop and all of the production people to show off what they can do. Very exciting, Christopher. Thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Thanks, Jeff. I can't let you go yet, though. Oh, what am I missing? Because I'm curious whether or not since the last time we spoke, you've had any additional or new ghost sightings you could report to us. It is the Ghost Light Podcast, after all. That's right. It is the Ghost Light Podcast. I'm trying to think if I've had any recent ghosts. Uh, I think I almost became a ghost myself when I had to replace (laughs) the title character in our upcoming Man of La Mancha two weeks before we started rehearsals. Yes, Yes. Uh, but I, I don't have any juicy stories well, for I you. Think, I think that's a paranormal experience. If you felt like you saw the light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel I that think, time. I think that's about as good as I got for now. Christopher Macbeth, thanks so much for being part of the Ghost Light Podcast. Thank you so much. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. 